0: This message by Bill Kittrell was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Bill serves as a senior pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. Please uh, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. Continue in our series, the Gospel of Mark. Be in chapter 15 today. Begin reading in verse 1 and read down through verse 20. We're going to be flipping around in the Bible a little bit today. So, I hope you have access to a copy of the Scriptures so that you can follow along and we can take advantage. This is God's Word, God's inerrant Word, and we are receiving a gift this morning as we have the privilege to read and consider the Word of Christ. So, join me now as I lead us by reading beginning in Mark chapter 15 verse 1 If you remember last week Jesus was on trial before the chief priests and now he's headed for Pilate and as soon as it was morning the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer. So that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked, And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? And they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Verse 16, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked Him, they stripped Him of the purple cloak and put His own clothes on Him, and they led Him out to crucify Him. May the Lord bless His holy word, and may our affection for Christ increase today through this word. I believe He's calling us to to trust Him regardless of our circumstances. We're coming to the end of our series on the Gospel of Mark. It's always a little sad when we come to the end of a book of the Bible we've been benefiting from together as a congregation. And especially when the series is as long as Mark has been. We started this book in February 2019. And we've taken a few breaks along the way, but we have spent a lot of Sundays in the Gospel of Mark. Last Sunday's actually going to be next Sunday. Mike will be sharing the rest of Mark 15. And we we skipped ahead and did Mark 16 for our Easter text. So we'll be done after next Sunday. But this is my last message from Mark. So... It's going to be more of a pastoral message. I think the Lord wants to use this text in a broader way than normal. It won't be a normal message. And what I mean by that is you're going to have to have a gift of the Spirit to follow me. (laughs) This year, 2020, I remember thinking, what a cool number. That's a cool year. I'm going to like this year. <laughs> Seems to be a life-altering year for everyone. It is, but it isn't affecting everybody the same. As a pastoral team, we've been aware that for, for many of us, um, it's been an extended trial. People have been experiencing adversity. We've been focusing the care of the church on that. We know that many people are tempted to be anxious. There's so much uncertainty and so many different things going on. And so that's really been a primary focus. And I think rightfully so. But I think along the way we've missed a group of people in our church. And also people outside our church. Many it seems during this year and during the pandemic and all that's going on are, are experiencing surprisingly good circumstances. Have you noticed that? Many many are going through a test, but it's the test of prosperity. I've asked people how things are going, and I've been surprised at the responses. So I'm a little bit embarrassed to say, you know, this, this has really been a good season for me. Things are Things are going great. I'm actually enjoying this season. I've had a number of people say this to me inside and outside the church. I'm, I'm going to hate to see this in some things, in some ways. Business is great. Even businesses that you wouldn't expect to doing well or doing well. The stock market rebounded. It crashed, but didn't really crash, but it went down. And then he kind of came back, what do I know about the stock market? But I hear it's doing okay. Many, many people find their jobs seem secure. Every time you turn around, the government's sending you a check. They don't want you to pay taxes. Take your time. A lot of people have more time at home. They're even working at home. They've had extra time off. Youth sports have been canceled. It's like peace all year long and serenity. Not to mention saving thousands of dollars on gas money. Feels like a lot of families have said, they just feel like they have more quality time together. It's a slower pace of life. And then there's live streaming. You know, I get it all the time. Man, I miss gathering, but uh, sleeping in, no serving responsibilities, sitting in the lazy boy, cup of joe and a cinnamon roll. You know, if this is taking up my cross and following Christ, I'm all in. (laughs) Live streaming rocks. So anyway, today we're going to look at our text more briefly and review a bit. And I I hope that we'll see a view of Christ as our great self-sacrificing King. And we're going to have special application for those of you experiencing the test of prosperity. I hope it will encourage all of us in our admiration and worship of Him. At the end of the message, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. So this is going to be kind of an opportunity for self-examination. God didn't spare His Son. He delivered Him up for us all. And so we can take a look at our sin today and be transformed by by His grace. Amen. Three times in the Gospel of Mark, you can turn to hold your place in chapter 15. Like I said, we're going to be flipping back and forth. If you have an electronic copy of the Scriptures, shame on you. I'm just kidding. That's fine with me. Just don't tell me. I don't want to know. Three times in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus tells his disciples in detail, if you remember, that he's going to Jerusalem to be killed and to rise from the dead. Let's read all three of them. It's kind of easy to remember where they are. Mark 8.31, Mark 9.31, Mark 10.33. So they're, they, they follow along in those three chapters. Mark 8, 31, first of all, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now think about Mark 15, last week, Mark 14, next week, as we're thinking about. Think about his predictions. Turn over to Mark 9, verse 31. He was teaching his disciples, here it is again, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Now over in chapter 10, verse 33, we're going up to Jerusalem. You can just see these disciples, they're just not getting it. We are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over. That's an important word to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. Sounds like chapter 15 and after 3 days he will rise. So, it is clear as you read through this gospel, this is important to Jesus, and it's important to Mark. If you compare these three times that Jesus predicts his suffering, four things stand out. He's going to die. And his death is intentional. He isn't being taken by surprise. He intended for this to happen. It's purposeful. He isn't running from it. We can't go to Jerusalem because I'm going to be killed. He's going to Jerusalem. He set his face like flint and he's going there knowing he's going to die and he's preparing his disciples. He walks into the events we read about in Mark 15. Walks right into it. It isn't suicidal. It's murder. And the, the murderers are mentioned in each text. And he will rise from the dead, and it won't be at some uncertain time. It'll be precisely in three days. His death is appointed, his resurrection is appointed, and it'll happen on schedule. And we're reading the fulfillment of this in Mark chapter 15. This is is the trial before Pilate. We saw last week before the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. Now they, the chief priests especially, deliver him over to Pilate. The Roman authorities. Mark was writing his gospel for the church in Rome when Nero was the emperor. He was a wicked man. He was a dictator. It was a totalitarian state. Pilate is a Roman governor. The chief priests, they bind Jesus. They take Him to Pilate. They didn't have the authority to execute a criminal. And they also knew that if they had Pilate's support, His condemnation, it would help if Jesus' followers tried to make Him a martyr afterwards. So, they bring him to Pilate, and when they do, he asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Remember the Sanhedrin was worried about blasphemy. Pilate could care less about blasphemy, it was little concern to him. But claiming a political title, that got you crucified. So, he wants to know, are you the king of the Jews? It's mentioned six times in Mark 15. Crucifixion. We all know Jesus was crucified. It's a Roman way of executing criminals. So we know the Romans killed Jesus. Ultimately they're responsible for His death. Jesus' response, you have said so. It's It's reflective of Mark's emphasis on his silence. You remember this from his trial before the Sanhedrin. His his silence in the face of hatred, abuse, lies, cruelty. It dominates Mark's account. So as we're reading this, his silence is supposed to affect us. It isn't the silence of defeat. It's, It's the silence of someone surrendering to the sovereignty of God. He's surrendering to God's plan. There's a plan here. This has been appointed. He's being delivered over according to the Word of God. God is watching over His Word to perform it. This has been prophesied about for hundreds of years, for centuries. Jesus has predicted it. It's a plan. God is watching over his word to perform it. And he is silent as he accepts God's sovereign plan. And verse 5 in chapter 15, if you want to flip back over there, Pilate was amazed. He was amazed. Isn't that interesting? That what amazed him was his silence. Throughout this gospel, we've seen repeatedly the crowds are amazed at the works of Jesus Christ, at his teaching, at his authority. They're amazed. He's an amazing person. Pilate was amazed at his silence. Even in silence, He is a powerful witness. He is the Son of God. What's even more amazing is Matthew records that at one point when he was arrested, one of his disciples tried to rescue him with a sword. And Jesus said, don't you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and He will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. But how then would the Scriptures be fulfilled? What's amazing, Pilate's not aware of this, is that he could call on his Father and be delivered anytime he wanted to. That's what's amazing. But he considers releasing Jesus. Jesus. He releases prisoners to gain favor from the crowd. Political capital, if you will. And and so he recommends Jesus. But the chief priests stir up the crowd to release Barabbas instead. A known killer. And so Jesus takes the place of Barabbas. It's a... It's a reflection of the substitutionary nature of the atonement. He dies in the place of others. Here we have a picture of it with a known murderer. He's released. And in his place, the innocent Son of Man is crucified. Paul said in Romans 5, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Peter says in 1 Peter 3, Christ died for sin. The righteous for the unrighteous. We can see in Barabbas, his substitutionary death for us. He died for me. Thank you. In chapter 15, verse 1 says they bound Jesus, they led Him away, delivered Him over to Pilate. Verse 15, Pilate delivered Him to be crucified. Remember back in chapter 9, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. In chapter 10, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests, and they will deliver him over to the Gentiles, the Romans. Peter's preaching in Acts 2 to the Jewish people and he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It's God's plan. God is at work here. The reason that Pilate, according to verse 10 in chapter 15 here, the reason Pilate repeatedly tried to release Jesus is because he perceived that it was out of envy. Out of envy that the chief priests had delivered Him up. It's the only occurrence of the word envy in all of the Gospels. The chief priests condemned And handed over Jesus because of envy. It's a testimony to the success Jesus had in ministry to people and teaching. They were envious of his success. Envy is their motivation. That's why they arrest Jesus. That's why they deliver him over to Pilate. Envy. It's powerful, isn't it? So we're going to pause for a minute now and do some self-examination. Envy is feeling unhappy when others prosper, when others are blessed. Envy is... Grief and can lead to anger because somebody else succeeds. It's it's a pervasive sin. It hides really well. It, It explains a lot about our culture. Advertising is built on appealing to envy. Political factions are formed because of envy. No one wants to confess envy, we'll confess pride. We'll we'll confess sexual sin more easily than the sin of envy. No one wants to say, I'm eaten up with envy. I'm green with envy. Because it seems so petty, it makes us look bad. It's embarrassing to say, I'm envious. Shakespeare called it the green eyed monster. The Grinch is green because he's envious. Proverbs 27, verse 4 says, Wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who can stand against envy? Wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who can stand against envy? We should care about Envy, according to God's word, it's more powerful than wrath and anger. It's out of envy that Jesus was delivered up and crucified. It's why Barabbas was released and Jesus was killed. Paul says in Galatians 5 that envy is a powerful work of the flesh The remaining sinful nature in believers. It's a a powerful work that believers have to battle. He says, God's Spirit is at work freeing us, liberating us from envy. It operates close to home, doesn't it? It's always on the relational level, people we're close to. It's not easy to recognize it. Look for questions coming from your heart, like, "What, what about me? I wish that would happen to me. Every year I go on a fishing trip with my boys. and This year my son-in-law came and it was a great time. And every year we go and catch a lot of trout. One, one memorable event took place. I caught a nice brown trout. I've caught a, plenty of trout over the years, but this one sticks out. Because all the boys came running and they were excited that I caught a fish. The water was really high and muddy. We'd been fishing for a while. It just seemed like the conditions were such none of us were going to catch many fish. And when I caught one, everybody rejoiced because it gave us all hope. Hey, maybe we will catch something. That sticks in my memory because they never rejoice when I catch a fish. (laughs) They don't rejoice when anyone catches a fish except them. They might not get depressed or angry if you catch one, but if you catch two, start thinking about anger management. Because of envy, it's powerful. How can we overcome it? How can we be liberated from it? Joe Rigney says, Learn to love inequality. Envy hides under the guise of fairness. You know, God intends, according to Paul, for some to be hands and some to be feet. There are differences by design, aren't there? 1 Corinthians 12, The eye can't say to the hand. He's talking to the church. The Corinthian church is eaten up with envy. Now, I can't say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. We can be grateful for those who have different gifts and different opportunities. By the grace of God, we can delight deeply when they're blessed. Paul says again in 1 Corinthians 12, God has so composed the body of Christ, giving greater honor... To the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. We live in an egalitarian age. We want everything equal. Everyone has to have the same. It's driven by envy. Envy always wants to pull someone who's up down, doesn't it? There is a kind of equality that God loves. We're all made. All equally made in God's image. We're all equally redeemed. The redeemed are all equal. But all are not an eye and all are not feet. And so we want to learn by the grace of God it's so critical in the church because envy is so powerful to rejoice when others are blessed. Sometimes we need to remember God has enough blessing for everyone. Envy will make you feel like if they get blessed, there's no more left for me. But that's not that's not the way the Lord is. Envy wants you to think that, but God is rich with blessing. He's got plenty for everybody. We can jo- rejoice when other people. So Pilate lobbies for Jesus three times in Mark 15. He. He harbored doubts about his execution, but he concluded that executing him is going to be for my political advantage. So he wants to satisfy the crowd, and he's willing to sacrifice an innocent prisoner for political reasons. Wishing to satisfy the crowd. Verse 15, release for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. He had him flogged, scourged, flogged. It was was cruel. It was merciless. It's how they would prepare people for the crucifixion. The New Testament shows no desire to sensationalize Jesus' sufferings. It's very brief. They're not trying to recount the horrors. Mark's no exception. He's very succinct. He's very, he had him scourged. So if you're a modern reader, you're ignorant of how savage this was. What they did to prisoners before the crucifixion. The hope was that it would shorten the time they would be on the cross. Many prisoners died just from the flogging. In the final prediction of his sufferings he goes into the most detail and he gives all the details of the role of the Romans. If you go back and look at it he nailed it as we read through it. They mock him, they spit on him, they flog him, they crucify him. But Mark places his emphasis for a reason on the mockery. They put a purple cloak on him. Purple was very expensive. It was reserved for royalty. It symbolized royalty. They twisted together a crown of thorns. Crowns were made of gold and they were for victorious military people and and the emperor. But they twist together. They're mocking Him. And then they said, Hail, King of the Jews! It was a parody of what they would say for Caesar. Hail, Caesar, the emperor! They're just mocking Him. Hail, you're the King of the Jews. When He's on the cross, they say, save yourself and come down from the cross. You said you could destroy the temple and build it in three days. Save yourself. Verse 19, they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. They led him out to crucify him. And they go from this, these soldiers go from mocking now to violence. And so we can imagine what it would be like to turn loose these kinds of men to a Condemned criminal about to die. It was a whole battalion. 600 men. He's hit on the head with a reed. It was brutal. Spitting on him, kneeling down. This is the suffering servant prophesied by Isaiah. You can go back and read about it. This is the suffering servant sent by God. But what is not mentioned is why. We find the answer to that in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. John Piper says, this is the great central fact of history and of our lives. The Son of Man came. That's what we're observing. This was God's plan to ransom captives. It's why he suffered. I have a a Garmin exercise watch. I work out. (laughs) And it has an app on your phone and you can sync it. And in my case, keep track of how pitiful you are. But it froze this week. Those of you who know anything about this, you know what I'm talking about. It stopped working. And I learned that they had been attacked. It's called a ransomware attack. I don't have time to go into the details. But it's where cyber criminals get in someone's computer and they shut things down and demand a ransom It shut down apps, it shut down manufacturing plants for Garmin. Most importantly, it shut down my watch. They demanded $10 million. And my watch started working this week, and so I looked on the internet to find out if they paid. Well, no one knows. So, they don't know, except for Slade Griffin, I'm sure he knows. The question is, did they pay up? And all the experts say if they did, then they'll, they'll get hit again. Anyway, I'm just glad my watch is working. The point is, is that you pay a ransom if you want your computers liberated because they've been attacked. They're not working properly. We were in bondage and a ransom had to be paid. Psalm 49 says, no man can ransom another. No man can ransom his own soul. No matter how rich he is. It's a psalm. Psalm 49. Go back and look at it. It's all about wealth and and how wealth masquerades as being able to ransom your soul, but it can't. God will ransom my soul, the psalmist says. Man can't, but God will. What's happening is Jesus is fulfilling God's plans to ransom souls. He's giving His soul as a ransom for many. Why does He do that? Because He loves you if you're among the many. Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. And that's why He did it. Turn back to Mark 8. We'll conclude by looking at Mark 8. What, What does it look like when someone is ransomed? It's what these verses in, in Mark 8 are about. Have you been set free from the bondage of sin and guilt and condemnation and wrath? This is what it looks like. Mark eight thirty four. Calling the crowd to Him with His disciples, He says, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Me. The ransom followed Jesus, even though it means self-denial, even though it means cross-bearing, If you treasure Jesus so much, trust Him enough to follow Him, even when it's costly, you're ransomed. If you love the world and the things in the world more than Jesus, you aren't ransomed. Jesus is calling us to treasure Him more than our own comfort of ease. Paul said it like this, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for His sake. I have suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Mark 8.35, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? This is why we respond to the call to take up the cross and follow him. Because you could gain the whole world and it's of no profit. A man can't ransom his own soul, it won't be able to save you. There's nothing you can pay for your soul. So we take up our cross, we deny ourselves, and we follow him. Because gaining the whole world will be of no use. He says in verse 38, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed. When he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The opposite of being ashamed is being proud of someone. Admiring them. Not being embarrassed. If you're not proud of Jesus and you don't cherish him and what he's done for you, you're not following Him. If you value your reputation in this world more than you value Him, then that's how He will view you when He returns. He's coming again. He's at the gates. If you are suffering, remember, it's the Lord at work for your good. He's preparing you. It's a gift from Him. Steadfastness and faith in the midst of suffering prepares us So that we will glorify him when he returns. All Christians are destined for this, for adversity. It's Christianity 101. It's the normal means for preparing us for Christ's return. It has a purpose, it suits us for that moment, it purifies us. That's how he does it. So that when he returns, we'll marvel. Sufferings heal us of the disease of worldliness. They fit us to marvel at Christ. So what about prosperity? Many are experiencing, like I said, surprisingly good circumstances. What about prosperity? How should you respond? It's a test. Here's what Jerry Bridges says, As difficult as it is to trust God in times of adversity, there are other times when it may be even more difficult to trust Him. These would be times when circumstances are going well. During times of temporal blessing and prosperity, we're prone to put our trust, aren't we, in those blessings, or even worse, in ourselves. Like we're the provider of those blessings. It's a test. Will you trust God, sometimes God's people prosper. David said in Psalm 16, the boundary lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. It's not just the wicked that prosper. Sometimes we prosper. But when we experience blessings in this life and our circumstances are good, we're tempted to trust in the gifts. Instead of God who has given us these things. What's it sound like when you pray for your meals? Is it a formality or is there genuine affection? Or what for your job or for your health? All the things God's given you. If you're prospering, when we are grateful, it's an expression of trusting Him in the midst of prosperity. Lord, thank You. Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. A rich man's wealth is his strong city. And like a high wall in his imagination. The contrast is not between the righteous and the rich. There are many people who are wealthy and trust the Lord. They're righteous and wealthy. The contrast in Proverbs 18 is between God and money. The two things, the two options we have. What what we're going to trust in. Do you trust in God or you trust in money? Or other strong cities relationships, education, medical care, insurance. But what do we, what's our strong city? If any of these things are what we're trusting in, we aren't safe. We're only safe when we run to Him. He's our strong tower. Again, Jerry Bridges, we ought to be as earnest and frequent in our prayers of thanksgiving when the cupboard is full as we would be in our prayers of supplication if the cupboards were bare. In adversity, we tend to doubt God's fatherly care, but in prosperity, we tend to forget it. Please don't forget it. If you're prospering, let's thank Him. Let's trust Him in all circumstances. Adversity, prosperity. We've been given the Gospel of Mark so that we can see the One that fulfilled the call on His life to give His life away as a ransom to liberate us from envy, from self-sufficiency that we might take up our cross and follow Him for His glory. Amen. We're going to celebrate now the Lord's Supper. We're going to celebrate. We've been bought with a price and this is a picture. This is a reminder. We are proclaiming today the Lord's death. So I'd like the worship team to come and Jake's going to come and lead us. Let me pray for you as we prepare our hearts to receive communion in a worthy manner. Lord, thank You for the Gospel of Mark. Thank You, Lord, for the provision of Your Word. Thank You, Lord, for speaking to us through Your Word. Lord, we thank You for this picture. We thank You for these truths. We thank You for objective truth about our Savior. And Lord, let our hearts be filled with faith today that we might leave trusting Him. You've been listening to a message given by Bill Kittrell during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.